It is. Yes, I do thank you for your continued prayers on that new building. Let me just say, you know, I know some are ambivalent to, to just a building, you know, it's just a carpet and that. But let me just tell you, uh, for those of you that have been part of this ministry for a long time, you know that this is not a building. This is an era. This is a whole work that God is planning to do. And it is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 60 and verse number one that God gave us uh, over 20 years ago that we, God has a plan. We are to arise and shine. And so uh, I just am so excited about that. And now uh, some have asked, well, uh, is this the grand opening or the dedication? And uh, many churches uh, today uh, have just adopted this concept of a grand opening, and it's a good thought. But uh, uh, scripturally speaking, uh, it is important to have a dedication. And there's a difference between a dedication and a grand opening. Now, uh, some have said, well, does that mean you're dedicating, but you're not opening? Well, no, we're opening the building, and the plan is to continue being in the building from the dedication Sunday on. But a grand opening, really, uh, I think the main difference is, um, a couple of main differences, but one of them is that uh, in a grand opening, uh, we're introducing our building to the community. And by the nature of that, the idea is to pull out all the stops and get everybody we can. Well, uh, given the current climate, that's maybe not the best concept. And um, really, uh, we want to make sure that we have plenty of time to uh, get everything uh, kind of buttoned up as much as we can. And so that will be sometime in the spring, the Lord willing, perhaps around Easter. A dedication is a scriptural service. It is a solemn assembly. It is, uh, we see it in several places in the scripture, and especially in 1 Kings chapter 8. And so uh, when uh, it is a day where we dedicate the building to the honor and the glory of the Lord. Now, when you read through that passage, uh, it, is, uh, it is a very serious moment. And being a serious moment, it's a moment of commitment. And so here's what I would say about the dedication. Um, we, as always, every uh, service is welcome to anybody who's willing to, you know, um, play by the rules, be in here, you know, and, uh, and, be, uh, and be listening. But so the dedication is open to everybody. And so we want everybody to come. If you're listening online, make sure that you... Uh, schedule that. We want you to come. But it is not especially for those who are not ready, and listen closely, for a fresh commitment. You cannot read through the dedication services in Scripture and not realize this is a moment of dedication, not only to the building, but for me personally. And so it is for people who are serious about God, and that's why it's a dedication. And I will tell you, it, there's going to be some very serious moments. And in that regard, that's why, although we'll have it taped, we're not going to broadcast it live because I'm afraid that the, uh, the nature of the service may not be best for public uh, you know, uh, observation because there are some commitments that we need to make if we are going to use this building for God's glory. And there are some very serious moments and glorious moments. And I will tell you, uh, when you come on that day and you see what's about ready to happen, it's just uh, incredible. And so uh, forgive us if uh, uh, talking about it uh, too much uh, bothers you. But uh, as I mentioned, it's not a building. This is a fresh commitment. And so because of that, I am so thrilled. And everybody that walks in is blown away. I mean, it is from a 
beautiful standpoint. It's amazing, functional standpoint. But when we realize what is going to happen, and I will just say, that's what, um, just this morning as I was praying early, the weight, and especially in light of our elections, folks, um, you know, there's very few places where truth is found. I mean, very few institutions. Um, it's certainly, and very clearly, it's not in government. I mean, you just, you're not going to hear truth in government, especially right now with the... So, I mean, just you pretty much can't get truth from anybody. It's not from the uh, media. You're not going to get truth from the media. You're not going to get it from education. So where do we find truth today? Where, where, where is truth to be found? That's exactly what the prophet said in the Old Testament. He said, truth has fallen to the ground. I mean, where is it? And unfortunately, it's not in very many homes. So really, the only place that truth can be found is in churches. Now, and I'm concerned because so many churches, I heard about churches just shutting down because of the draconian rules and everything else. Uh, they're going broke and others are taking money from the government. So the, and the, Where is truth? It is found in evangelical Bible-believing churches. And with that in mind, I realized that what God, what God decided to put on the map here in a field in Lodi is that God wanted a place where truth would be preached. And that's why on the dedication Sunday, it's a commitment day and it's an anathema day. And I will tell you when we come on that Sunday what that means. But you see, folks, we have a responsibility for the truth. Where is it to be found? And so that's why I'm so grateful for your faithfulness over these years. And even in this season, uh, faithful, uh, fearless Christians, courageous Christians. And yes, uh, we're all disappointed about this election. But honestly, to me, it's just a bump in the road. I mean, really. Folks, we know what our goal is. We know what our responsibility is. Our responsibility is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, our, uh, we know what our future holds. And it's never, our hope's never been in uh, the White House, anyway, and uh, we had a nice little respite here for four years, but uh, and uh, maybe maybe that'll change again. But for now, we'll just keep doing what we know to do, and uh, I just know that we're going to go forward with God's grace. All right, let's go to our message here this morning, and uh, let's go to the book of Mark. Excuse me, Matthew chapter nine. We're talking about unstoppable God. Today's message is God's power over disobedience. Now, for each of you that are here and those that are listening uh, with us and joining here, and thank you for being part of our growing online family. Uh, we're meeting people all the time that said, hey, I've been listening. God bless you. Thank you. We're glad you're here. Well, now, what is the most distinguishing feature about Christianity? What is the one thing that we can offer that pretty much nobody else can offer? What is it that a church, what is it that God, what is it that the Christendom can provide that no other institution, no other group in society can? Well, I think absolutely, unequivocally, the most unique feature that sets Christianity above every other institution are found in the words in this passage. 
In Mark chapter 9, we're going to see the words in the first part there where Jesus says to this man who is in tough shape, he says to him, thy sins, your sins be forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven. Now, others can offer fun. Of course, not as much fun as being in a Bible-believing church, amen. And others can offer thrills, however temporary they are. Others can provide an earthly cause, despite the fact that it has an ultimate doom. But the amazing reality is that a church offers forgiveness. Christianity offers the forgiveness of sin. And that really is the very lifeblood, the core of our message. Many wonderful things and blessings to being a Christian. But I think the greatest of all is, and maybe the the greatest testimony of God's omnipotence, is that God can take sin, He can wash it absolutely away, He can give that person an eternal life, and they will be there forever. God washes that sin away. That's some omnipotent power. If that person will repent, they will be saved to the uttermost, as it says. Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 25 here on the overhead or there on your screen. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost who come to God by him. God is able to save to the uttermost. That means to the absolute end. And thank God, not only is he able, he is willing. God is able and willing to save to the uttermost. Hallelujah. We are saved to the uttermost. That's great news this morning. And as an omnipotent God uh, with, uh, that we serve, he is omnipotent over disobedience. The poet said, forgiveness for our sins. He brings it in full measure. He holdeth back not an ounce, but giveth all his treasure. His precious own dear son, the greatest sacrifice that God could ever offer man himself, our ransomed price. And so this morning, God's omnipotence over disobedience or his forgiveness of sins. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for the beautiful opportunity to be here. Thank you for the, uh, the message of this church. Thank you for the faithfulness of these precious saints. I thank you and bless you, Lord, for the privilege of being part. And Lord, I just can't, uh, I'm so excited about the future and know what you have for us. But Lord, today meet with us. God, just flex your mighty arm about as we think about your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many attributes of God and the nature of God. The most common ones that people think about, perhaps, are his omniscience, his omnipresence and his omnipotence. Omni, a Latin word which means all. Uh, presence, of course, being there. God is everywhere. God is omniscient, which is the word omniscience, meaning science, meaning knowledge, all knowledge. He knows everything. But God is also omnipotent, and that's been our focus for several weeks. We've seen about God's omnipotence over so many things, and really with uh, so many verses in the Bible that talk about Almighty God, and we could be on this topic for a long time, but the Lord willing, uh, we'll have a message next week, and then we'll see after that. But omnipotence, all-powerful, and that's a great definition. But actually, we've seen that that definition isn't quite the best one, because God is as powerful as He chooses to be. That 
is the wise answer because that couples God's omnipotence and God's sovereignty together. And really, those are twin uh, that uh, go together. They're identical twins in one sense. They're, they're two sides of one coin. They're each side, they, you really can't have one without the other. And so God's sovereignty functions because He is omnipotent. Because He's omnipotent, He can speak to disease and it's gone. I mean, it's gone. He can heal people. He uses medicine and He uses procedures. And so we talked about how that God, out of His omnipotent power, heals people. We saw that He is uh, God over nature. We sang about that this morning. What manner of man is this? that even the winds and the waves obey him. Wow. To stop a tidal wave in its tracks and to be like a a little summer morning on a little pool. I mean, unbelievable that God could do that, but that's omnipotent God. And then we talked last week about how that God is omnipotent over the demon world and people who were demonized. And in one sense, uh, we're all demonized. I mean, in one sense, we're always being affected by a demon. Now, sometimes it's uh, just a small, and sometimes it's a great bit. In fact, this man in Scripture, these men, these so-called maniacs of Gadara, I'd like to talk about a joke right there, but the maniacs of <laughs> the Gadarenes. But anyway, these men were, had a legion of demons, and Jesus just spoke to them. And the great verse that we reminded ourselves is, that as many as received him, to them gave he power to become a son of God. You don't have to be uh, overcome by any demon because if you will believe, you have power given unto you. That's the, that's the operating factor there. If I would just believe in God and believe by faith that he wants to save me, then uh, I can have eternal life and I can have victory over the demons. He does that. And so unstoppable God can not only heal humans, he can change climate. He can not only heal humans and change climate, but he can deal with demons. I'm thankful this morning to announce that God is omnipotent over everything. Now, he is also omnipotent over sin. He is omnipotent in forgiveness. The great messianic prophet, the Old Testament prophet in Isaiah chapter 1 said, come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The great prophet said, stop for a moment. Think reasonably for a second in your life. Amen? (laughs) Think reasonably. Think logically. Think biblically for just a moment. Has God ever failed one time? Has God ever been deceitful? Has God ever not come for you? Then it stands to reason that if you have sin, God can wash it away. He can wash it so clean, you could take something like a piece of wool that had been sitting in dye for weeks and months, take it out and be clean just like that. That's the illustration there. God said it's... once you get something dyed like this, and you might think of this coat, there's no way that dark would come out of there. But God says his blood can wash it just like it was when it first came off of that um, old sheep there. And look what it says in the wonderful, deep and delightful book of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12. I will be merciful. That's his will. 
He chooses to be merciful. When he chooses to be merciful, he's so omnipotent, he can make it happen. He chooses to be merciful to their unrighteousness and to their sins and iniquities. Will I remember no more? He wills to remember our sins no more. And that's a great understanding of the omnipotence of God over forgiveness. He wills not to ever know our sin. Sometimes people say, well, if he's so knowing, how could he forget sin? If he's so uh, powerful, how could he not deal with sin? He chooses not to, as it says here, I will be merciful to who I will. I will forgive who I will. I choose. It's my choice. The fact is, if God chooses, he can wipe the slate absolutely clean. What a great truth. That means he wants to forgive me more than I even want to ask for it. God's not waiting on, we're not waiting on God to forgive us. He's just waiting on us. He is saying, look, if you'll just ask, I will cleanse all of that together. Now, with that little backdrop, let's go to Matthew chapter 9 now, and let's get our minds together what's happening here. Verse number 1, and he entered into a ship, passed over, and came into his own city. Matthew chapter 9, verse number 1. You may remember he had been in uh, the, uh, uh, the western side of there, the Sea of Galilee, which is not really a sea, it's just a big lake, sometimes known as Tiberias. Uh, he, it is not a whole lot unlike, in fact, a little bit smaller, actually, than Lake Tahoe. So he'd been on the North Shore, sort of uh, the western North Shore. He had gone down to the southeastern uh, shore down there in the area of where the Girgashites lived, uh, a group of uh, non-Jewish people, heathen, pagan group. And uh, there was a couple of uh, pagan guys there uh, uh, known as the... Uh, in Scripture, known as the maniacs of the Gadarenes. He gets out of the boat. They come screaming down the hill, crazy guys. Jesus casts those demons out of that guy. Those, they get born again. They get, their lives change. It's a miracle. Well, they get back on the boat, proceed back westward, and it says he comes to his own city. You'd say, well, oh, you're talking about Bethlehem. Well, that's where he was born, but that's not where he was raised. He was raised in Nazareth. That's why he is called Jesus the Nazarene, which is a little different than Nazarite, but he was Jesus of Nazareth. You'd say, well, is it we're talking about Nazareth? No, not actually, because he had, he had already been kicked out of Nazareth. That was not his own city anymore. You'd say, well, how did Jesus get kicked out of Nazareth? Wasn't he raised there? He was, but they, they kicked out the hometown boy. He was a little too much light for the uh, town there. And when uh, the anointing came on him to be a rabbi, uh, God's rabbi, uh, when God put his anointing on him to go out and to start his earthly ministry, it was just a little too much light for those guys. And as the Bible says, he was a prophet without honor in his own country. And it reminds us again that the human race has an alarming history of getting rid of strong leaders. And I think America's 2020 presidential election is a prime example of that. When there's a strong leader and he's, uh, he's able to make some positive changes, uh, they didn't like Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, so they get rid of him. So we're not talking about Bethlehem. We're not talking about Nazareth. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about 
Capernaum. So he's now in a town called Capernaum. It's on that uh, north uh, western shore there. And, uh, and I think it points out a good point about Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't force himself on anyone. Salvation is an offer. It's not a demand. Although he desires our salvation, he will not chase us down. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. I'm not going to chase them down. And so Jesus said, look, you don't want the truth. He goes on to the next city. That's why he told his disciples, just give them the truth. If they won't receive you, shake the dust off your feet and go on. He doesn't mean don't be caring. He just means you can't, you can't force people to accept the truth. You just got to give them the truth and give it faithfully and give it consistently. And then uh, they'll have to deal with it from there. And so now he's in Capernaum. While there, he pretty much, it appears, has taken up residence with Peter. That's where Peter lived. He is at Peter's Airbnb. And we think that because in chapter 8, uh, he had healed Peter's mother-in-law. And, uh, and that's... Uh, so because he had healed Peter's mother-in-law, we think that probably he was in the home. We probably lived there quite often. He was gone a lot, but he, when he'd come back, that's where he was. And so we find him in Capernaum. He probably was well-known in Capernaum. Everybody knew Peter back then. And so they heard that he, all the villages and the town area, we're not talking about a giant city or something, but we're talking about several thousands of people in the area. They heard that this man, this, this teaching rabbi, this amazing person is back over at Peter's house. And so hundreds, maybe more people come crowding to Peter's house. And that's where we pick up the story. And there are five features in this story that give us a, a great confidence in God's forgiveness over sin. Number one, notice the faith of his friends. Verse number two, and behold, they brought him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, as I look at this verse, this man has, is paralyzed. He, as it says, sick of the palsy, uh, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but he was a paralyzed man. And yet, the first thing on the agenda is to deal with sin. It says, behold, that's an exclamation point. Pay attention. Pay attention now, Matthew said, of what happens in this story. And that is that this man's sin is going to be forgiven. He is burdened with his sin. He is burdened with shame. He is burdened with unforgiveness. And it's a terrible thing to have guilt not us. You know, the human race doesn't really fare too well with guilt and shame. Some just fall back into bitter silence. Others plot revenge. Still others go to alcohol or drugs or painkillers or sexual um, immorality to numb the pain. Here's a man who is, uh, he, he is sick, but he is guilty, and that's his main concern. And so our main concern ought to be getting our sins washed away, not coping. I always, uh, I always feel sad when I hear people say, I'm coping. We need to do more than coping. Now, I know there's a godly enduring, but folks, uh, the world copes. 
They cope with, you know, this, or they cope with that, or they cope with this. Folks, God can wash sin away. That's what it says in 1 John 1 and verse 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses. And so it says they brought. Notice, they brought to Jesus, His friends. Now, the parallel passage in Mark and Luke say it was four dear friends, maybe relatives, but they were caring people. They hated to see their friend in such a condition, and so they wanted their friend to meet Jesus. Go meet Jesus. And so they bring him to Jesus, and it says he was sick of the palsy. Now, that means he was paralyzed. Being paralyzed, uh, he was in no shape to be able to move himself. Now, why was he paralyzed? People got paralyzed because maybe it was a congenital birth defect. Maybe he was paralyzed because uh, of an accident. They didn't have uh, orthopedic surgeons and others that could help people. Didn't have a lot of uh, uh, things to be able to walk with. And so maybe that was the case. There was a lot of critters around there like scorpions and other things that can affect somebody's ability to, uh, to be in good health. And then there were STDs. In fact, uh, uh, syphilis was absolutely rampant in the early world. And you can read many stories, of, especially in Europe. And so if that's the case, then that even makes it even more tragic because he was uh, suffering from his own sin. So here he is. He is lying on a bed, very likely a quadriplegic, or at least he is paralyzed. Maybe he had a stroke, but here he was. It's humiliating enough to not be in healthy, strong body. You don't feel good. But if it was connected to the fact that maybe he had sin, he had even an additional stigma. But he had some good friends. And so they put him on a pallet, put some blankets on that pallet, and they grab that thing and they say, we're going to see Jesus. And so they go over there to see Jesus and they go to, where's Peter's house? Where? They're in Capernaum and on down there. You'll see the big crowd down there. So they go down there and there's all these people. They can't even get into the front door. Kind of like uh, our Christmas drama last year. People came in and they looked in there and said, well, okay, you know, we'll come back another night. Came back the next night. It was full. They came back the next day. It was full. They said, good night. And uh, so thank God we're building a building for them. They don't have to do that again, the Lord willing, because we don't want anybody coming through our ceiling. And uh, as we'll see here in a moment. And so uh, they, uh, they decide we are going to, uh, we are going to get this guy to Jesus. He was sick, and, but he, most of all, his main concern was his sin. And so they uh, come there. And uh, this, um, these homes that had a, usually an external set of stairs because you could a lot of times be on top of the building, uh, not a lot of rain there. And so they would have a, like a patio on top of the building, flat roofs. And so the roof were often made of uh, some beams and some poles, some, uh, some supporting uh, beams. And they would have uh, all kinds of little branches and then they had their own type of uh, plaster kind of a muddy type plaster. And so it was not the greatest thing, but it worked good for them. And so uh, they were there and uh, they tried to get in. They decided that uh, they were going to get this man to Jesus. They were intent. It says Jesus seeing their faith. I love what it says in the book of Mark. It says that uh, they couldn't get in for the press. (laughs) 
I like that. Anyway, and there's a lot of people that can't find Jesus because of the press, amen? But uh, they couldn't get in for the press of people. So why in the world do these guys think of it? I have no idea. But they said, we are going to go through the roof. So they crawl up to the roof. They're carrying this guy. That's hard enough, carrying somebody uh, up there, you know. They get him up on top. And then the people are down there. Jesus is speaking, you know, he's talking. All of a sudden, a little bit of dust floats down. People are looking around. What's going on? A big rat up there. And then all of a sudden, you know, some more dust falls down. And uh, people are kind of looking around. What in the world's going on? And then all of a sudden, a hand comes through the ceiling. They're looking, what in the world? Pretty soon, they are ripping the roof off. And they are ripping the ceiling off. And then... They take that man and they lower him through that ceiling. That's why the Bible says, seeing their faith. Thank God that we could be healed when we have faith. He saw their faith. Thank God that uh, their amazing faith. And notice what it says. He says, son, be of good courage. Son, be of good courage. The first thing that he does is he says the word son. The word son there is the idea of child. Thank you for your childlike faith. Now, the idea really, uh, in fact, it's possible that he was the one that was the driver. He was the one got his friends and said, take me to that roof. Take me to Jesus. So because Jesus is commending him, he saw their faith. He saw his faith. He said, now, don't be upset. Be of good cheer. Uh, Be of good cheer. I don't want you to be upset at yourself. And uh, this guy was... Uh, this guy was in tough shape, but Jesus said, now I want to heal you. I want to take care of you. The fact is the first thing that Jesus does to him after he encourages him, he says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't even mention his sickness. And that's because the main thing this guy had an issue with was some kind of sin in his life. And he was desperate to have his sins forgiven. It was in 1880 that James Garfield was elected president of the United States. He was only in office for six months when he was shot in the back with a revolver. Strangely enough, he never lost his consciousness. They went to the hospital. The doctor probed the wound with his little finger, couldn't find the bullet. Uh, They tried a little magnetic uh, tipped uh, procedure, couldn't find the bullet. So they took Garfield back to Washington. He was growing very weak. Teams of doctors tried to find the bullet. They couldn't find the bullet. Day after day, week after week, teams of doctors came in and would take their finger, take their instruments, go back inside that wound looking for the uh, bullet. They just had to get it out. They even asked inventor, Alexander Graham Bell, if he could maybe think of something. He was kind of the you know, the Elon Musk of the day, Tesla, you know, there. And so they'll say, well, maybe he can do something. No success. He hung on for several months, and then in September, he died. They did a postmortem on our president, our former president, Madison, and find out that he didn't die from the bullet or from the wound. He died from the infection of people constantly probing at that that wound. And, you know, uh, I, I... I read that and I realized that's exactly what happens in this world today. We have so many people that are sick of sin 
and they are they need the forgiveness of God, and yet they try coping. You know, we'll try pills, or we'll try therapy, and they just keep poking at that wound when Jesus can just take it all, and he can cleanse it, and he can wash it all away. And that's what Jesus is doing for this man. He is healing him by faith, the faith of his friends. Number two, the favor of his God. Look at verse two. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Thy sins be forgiven thee, instantaneous, gone. In fact, the word forgiven there is the word for dismissal. Dismissed, your sins are gone. He just lets them go. And now we have no record of this man ever saying a word, but Jesus knew his heart's need. And that's because Jesus is a discerner of hearts. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Folks, I'll tell you what, God knows the heart. This man walked in there, or he was carried in there, and he was so in need of God, he didn't know what he really needed, but he needed forgiveness. And God knew what he needed, and he said, you need forgiveness. Have you ever been around a physician, maybe? You go there, and you're not quite sure what's going on, and he pinpoints it. He said, here's what you need. We didn't know it, but Jesus knew it. And he knew what this man needed. Because when you get around Jesus, you get around the word of God, it'll turn your inside out. And God just knows exactly what's going on. Several years ago, I used to have a little black uh, knit uh, polo shirt. I'd wear it on Sunday night. I wouldn't wear it any other time, but I'd wear it quite often on Sunday nights. Somehow, some way, I don't know how it happened, but it, uh, it got some holes in it. Some little moth holes, I guess. But uh, anyway, it got some little holes in it. Now, um, I like that shirt a lot, and being the very wise person I am, well, actually a cheapskate that I am, I did not want to get rid of that shirt. And so I, uh, I uh, took some uh, masking tape, and I put it on the inside of where the holes were. I stuck it on the inside there, then I took a little Sharpie, and I colored the little part where you would see the masking tape, you know. And I wore that thing for Sunday nights uh, forever, and nobody ever knew. I don't guess you knew. Maybe you did. But uh, my, uh, my wife used to just shake her head, and Lynette just say, oh, goodness. And uh, what in the world? And Pauline would tell you I do the same thing still today, <laughs> crazy stuff. But the fact is, you know, uh, all the while, you had no idea. But if you took that shirt out and turned it inside out, you'd see all the masking tape. Well, I tell that story because the folks, I tell you what, God knows our masking tape. He knows what's on the inside of our shirts. He knows what's on the inside of our heart. He looked at this man and he said, what you need is not to be healed from your, uh, your paralyzed. The first thing you need is to be healed of your sin. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, that's why salvation is a heart matter. God said, I see your heart. You've got sin in that heart. That's why you need to be saved from the heart. Sometimes we have the idea that salvation is just with the mouth. And this verse said, no, it's with the heart. You make confession with the mouth. You're saved in your heart, but you speak it with your mouth. And sometimes folks want to say, well, I said a prayer, but folks, what did your heart say? Just because we say a sinner's prayer, no, that's what the heart says. Man believes in his heart. They should be saved. Jesus knows the heart. And so he saw the heart of this man. You're forgiven because I see your heart. You're sincere. You're repenting. You want God. 
Look what it says in Romans 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned, for all have sinned. Now I want you to know the words that Jesus spoke to this man are not politically correct. Thy sins be forgiven. Jesus said it clear. You have sins and they need to be forgiven. We're told today to not say sins to people. We're told that that's uh, being, uh, you know, uh, shameful or uh, intolerant. But the fact is, we have sins. And the liberal elite tell us, you know, well, you're, you shouldn't talk about that. That's homophobic or it's racist or it's whatever. I'm not sure why they say that when God's very clear about the people who say that. Oh, you pastors. Oh, you evangelicals. You're always talking about others. Well, if you'll listen to what we're really saying, here's what you'll hear. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Say that with me. All. We have all sinned. If I say to somebody, you have sin in your life, I'm not saying I don't have sin in my life. I'm just saying you have sin in your life. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, the truth is we're all sinners. But there's two kinds of sinners. Two radically different kinds of sinners. There are saved sinners and there are lost sinners. But the fact is, all have sinned. And that's what Jesus looked at this man and said, you have sin in your life, you need to be saved from those sins. I hear people tell me all the time, oh, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. But look at verse 24 of Romans 3. Being justified freely by His grace, God is so omnipotent that He can choose to forgive freely. He can wipe the slate clean. And so He gives salvation. He wipes it clean. That's what's so tragic that's about this anti-conversion laws that have been being passed in so many states that, you know, you can't talk to people about their sin and about their immorality because, you know, uh, that's, you know, being racist or whatever. Folks, I'm telling you, that is a terrible, terrible law because when this man came, if he would have come in 2020 and if Jesus had said, your sins be forgiven you, oh, how could you ever say such a thing? This man is hurting. This man is sick. And how could you say such a thing? People today in this Oprah Winfrey world we live in, you know, it's not, uh, it's not alcoholism. It's just a disease. Or it's not, uh, they're born this way. Uh, folks, I'm telling you, we need to tell them, yes, you have sins, but praise God, omnipotent God can wash it all away. He can take it away. And that's what they're saying here. And Jesus washes the sin away. And I will tell you, that is the need of every heart. Everybody longs to have their sins forgiven. Everybody. I think it's a secret hunger of every heart. Ernest Hemingway grew up in a very devout evangelical home. Ernest Hemingway, a well-known author, poet, short story writer. And yet, sadly, he never accepted Christ. And in fact, was well-known for his rather... A wild life and wicked life, really, sinful life. Ernest Hemingway told a very famous short story. You've probably heard of it. But I will tell you that I think the story suggests that in his own heart, he was hungry for forgiveness. 
The story is of a Spanish father who decided to reconcile with his son. The son had run away to Madrid, and the father reached out with an ad in the El Libro, a newspaper, with these words, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. The father came to the square on Tuesday. He came at noon in hopes of meeting his son, Paco. And there in the square was 800 Pacos waiting to be reunited with their father. The fact of the matter is, folks, there are hundreds of people, thousands of people, millions of people that are desperately longing to have their sins forgiven and the favor of God. And we see that in this passage, the faith of his friends, the favor of his God. Number three, the fury of his adversaries. And we got we to speed up here. Verse number three, and the, behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Blasphemes? Whoa, I can't believe this man would talk like that, like he's God or something. They were wrong on two accounts. Jesus wasn't blaspheming. First of all, he was not a mere man, and nothing was more provable than Jesus is God. But second of all, they are wrong. He wasn't blaspheming because if you're doing what you're saying, then it's not blasphemy. Jesus had forgiven this man, and he had washed his sins away, and he had healed him of his disease. And that's a great moment that he had done that. And that's what Jesus does. He is the forgiver of sins. Luke chapter 7, verse 37, there was a woman who had her sins forgiven. Again, a woman who was a sinner, the Bible says. Not a word that people want to say today, but the fact was the Holy Spirit wasn't condemning or condoning this woman. He was just relaying that she was a sinner. Her condition was that of a sinner. But notice what it says, wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Here is omnipotent God saying, her sins are gone. Gone. The famous song says, like the woman brought to Jesus, who was taken in her sin. I was so ashamed of what I'd done and where I'd been. Well, justice called for payments that were more than I could give when mercy smiled upon me, saying, I forgive. And I love this part of the chorus. Oh, the sweetest words he ever said were, I forgive. And that's what he said to this man. He said, I forgive. He is the one who is able to forgive sin. That's why it says in Matthew 26 and verse 28, this is my blood of the New Testament, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. He is omnipotent enough to forgive sins. Maybe God's greatest picture of his omnipotence is that sins can be forgiven. In verse 4, let's go back to Matthew 9, verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? They did not like the thoughts that he was saying they could have their sins forgiven because that was, uh, that was making them sinful if Jesus could read their hearts. He was exposing their sin. And people don't like to have their sins exposed. We want to have our own idea of what sin is. I read of a man recently who uh, wanted to increase his life insurance. And so he went to the life insurance agent and asked for, you know, to be able to increase his insurance. And they said, well, I'd be happy to do it, but you're going to have to have a 
a medical exam. And so they started describing what would be involved in the medical exam. And he said, I don't want that. So he went home and decided to do his own medical exam. <laughs> he took his blood pressure and did everything like that and sent the results into the insurance agent. And they said, what in the world is this? He said, I just did my own exam. He said, it's not going to fly. That's, you know, that's, that's what I, I read. That's exactly what people do today. You know, they think that they're, they want eternal life insurance and they take their own exam and say, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. God, no way. And Jesus knows what's going on. The fury of his adversaries can't stand to be uh, looked at. Look at verse number four. And now we see the uh, number four, the force of it, the sovereign. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? Now I want you to watch Jesus destroy them, destroy their argument. Look at verse five. For whether is it easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee or to say arise and walk? Verse six, but that ye might know that the son of man hath power on the earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up thy bed and go into thy house. Now, which is easier, Jesus said. Okay, so picture the moment. They're in there, these religious uh, um, false teachers, you know, were always upset at Jesus for, you know, preaching this salvation by faith, you know, and they were losing power, losing influence, losing money, you know, everything else. They didn't like him. They hated Jesus. Here a man comes, he's sick of the palsy. They had nothing to give him. Jesus looks at him and said, your sins be forgiven. The guy never asked for, he never asked for anything, but Jesus looked in his heart and said, what you really need is to be forgiven. And so Jesus dealt with his spiritual need first. These guys were upset. And then after all that settles, he healed the man and the man stood up and started walking. It was a great moment. Well, these guys were so upset. And Jesus said, now, let me ask you a question. Which is easier, do you think? You false teachers, hear me. Do you think it's easier to heal somebody or to forgive their sin? Which is easier? Well, he knew the answer and they knew the answer. Neither is easy. It is impossible for anybody to heal that man. Absolutely impossible. And it would also be impossible for anybody to wash that man's sin away. I mean, you can't go back. You know, sometimes we say, well, you can't go back. You can't go back and undo, but God can. He can go back and undo the guilt of our sin. And that's exactly what he did here. He said to these men, he said, now, if you would agree that it's impossible to do both, then you have to agree to the fact that I can forgive sin because it's obvious I healed the man. The guy's standing there going, Yep, that's me. I, would, I was that guy just a few minutes ago on that pallet there. He's standing there. They could not deny that. Jesus said, if you can't deny that I healed this man, then you also can't deny that I took away his sin. They would say, well, um, you know, that's... And, and Jesus healed him physically to prove that he had washed away his sin. Because all he had said was, you know, his sins be forgiven. You know, that's really not too provable. We don't really know, but God knows that. And that's why he was telling him that he, because of his omnipotent power, was able to give eternal life. Look what it says in John 17, verse 2. God gives Jesus, he should give eternal life to as many 
as he wills, or as to many as thou hast given him. That's what Jesus does. He gives eternal life, the one who is both mighty God and Savior at the same time. Warren Wearsby tells a story from yesteryear of a little boy who was on a horse and buggy and it just bolted away, got spooked, and it was just racing down the road. Seeing the young life and child in danger, a young man risked his life, jumped onto that buggy, slowed it down. Sadly, that same child who had been rescued grew up to live an evil life. One day stood before a judge, sentenced for sin and his, uh, some crime. The man who years before looked up there, saw the man who had saved his life was the judge. He pled for mercy with the judge, saying, Judge, you're the one who saved my life when I was racing away there in that little buggy. Thank you for doing that. And he pled for mercy. The judge looked at the man and said, young man, then I was your savior. Today, I am your judge, and I must sentence you to be hanged for your sin. You see, the same Jesus who can save those who receive him is the same God who is omnipotent judge. He is both savior and judge. And that's what Jesus was proving to these people. He was saying, you need to understand, I am sovereign in my ability to forgive sin. Nobody can forgive sin. That leads us to the last point, the fascination of his group. Verse six, arise, take up your bed, go to your house, show everybody just what you, how great God is. Give a good testimony for the Lord. And he arose and departed to his house. Oh, what a moment. Verse 8, but when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Such power unto men. Can you imagine that God can do such a thing? Now, let me close with one uh, thought here that really, I think, brings this whole thing together. Jesus has the ability to forgive sin, which is far different than just overlooking sin. It's far looking than pardoning sin. When a president leaves office, it is customary for the president to pardon people. Sometimes he pardons people that do need to be pardoned. They had got a raw deal. They didn't deserve to be in the situation they're in, and it's a good thing. Other times, however, it's not that way at all. It's just for some reason he pardons them. The people who have been violated by that sinful person, that evil person, it's not very good for them. They don't like it. You can only imagine if somebody pled for mercy who had assaulted my family. I mean, I might want to be a nice guy to them, but the fact is they need to take responsibility for that sin. They need to uh, never hurt anybody again. And no human can forgive sin. We can pardon. We can overlook it. We can choose to look the other way. We can be nice about it. We can forget it. But we can never forgive sin. And that's what God is saying here. He is saying, I have the ability to do both. And I want to read one final scripture to you. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. God, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, 
keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity. Who would say amen to that? Amen to that. Thank God for all those wonderful truths about God. But wait a second. Look at the next part. That same God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, good, who forgives iniquity, that same God will by no means clear the guilty. What? What? (laughs) How can he do that? Because God doesn't pardon sin. He doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't, he doesn't just, he's not just nice about sin. He forgives sin. Only God can forgive sin. As a human, I can't forgive sin. I can forgive you. I can be nice. I can be nice a person, but I can't actually take away the sin as though it never happened. But God can because God acts in true justice. And that's what Exodus is saying here, that God, while merciful, is also just. And that's why we have that beautiful verse in Psalms that says that God's truth and His mercy come together, and they came together at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus took the full weight of the wrath of God the Father so that I could go free. And that's exactly what this whole story is talking about. Jesus is saying to these men, He is saying, He is forgiven Because I, omnipotent God, have paid the price for his sin to be forgiven. And they didn't like for that man to be forgiven because they didn't really like him. They didn't like what he stood for. They didn't like about that guy. But Jesus was saying, he is forgiven. But he can only have it taken care of if he says yes to that. You know, um, it is said that when Gerald Ford uh, pardoned uh, President Nixon, you know, there's a law on the books that says that uh, a, a pardon can only take place if the one who is guilty accepts the pardon. I mean, you can't demand that a person not, you know, um, do the death penalty, for example. You can't demand that a person accept the, you know, the pardon. You have to You have to give them the right. They have to approve the pardon. It is said that when President Ford uh, pardoned President Nixon, he secretly sent an emissary beforehand, or privately, sent an emissary beforehand and asked Nixon, number one, will you accept the pardon? And number two, will you accept the guilt that is implied by what you're accepting? President Nixon did both. He was pardoned. And that's, to me, exactly what God is saying in all of this. He has sent to us the Holy Spirit. He has sent to us the Holy Spirit and given us a word from God that says, if you will accept my son, if you will accept him as Savior, you will have all of your sins forgiven. When this man accepted God's forgiveness, Jesus proved his omnipotent power by washing his sins, and he never again ever had to, uh, he would never go to hell because his sins were forgiven. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.